when I look at our Christian brothers, you're not called to be passive or powerless or wimpy. <laughs> you know, the calling is a steeper calling than what patriarchy asks. You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javit, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host. Hello and welcome back to Our Urban Voices. I'm your host, Dr. Alphonse Javit. Today I'm joined by Karen Custis James, the author of Maelstrom, How Jesus Dismantled patriarchy and redefines manhood and other books as well as serving as faculty and board member of uh, several christian organizations our topic today focuses on the counterculture design that god has for men before we jump in a little bit about our guest she is the author of eight books as well as being an adjunct faculty member of uh, missio seminary in philadelphia and she serves on the boards of uh, logia and the Institute for uh, Bible Reading. Thanks for joining us today, Carolyn. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and I'm thrilled to be on your program. So we are so happy you are here because the topic we are about to discuss is very close to my heart. In my church, in my ministry, I'm big on uh, sharing with men how to be strong men in your families. But I'm very interested in your viewpoint. But before we get started, please tell us a little bit about your own family. I do this with every guest because I think families are important. And I also think that when a guest talks about their family, that humanizes them. Our audience actually connect with them better. So please share with us a little bit about your family and your background. I'm a pastor's kid. And so I grew up in the church and was raised on the Bible. It was a Bible church. That was the the name of, uh, of the church. And that gave me a love for the scriptures that has, it's only grown over time. I was the only girl. I have three brothers. I'm a minority (laughs) in our family and the rules were different for me. I was expected to go to college, of course, and then get married and and become a mom and um and that was supposed to be the trajectory of of my story and it was what i saw in the church and it was what i expected to do and when i graduated from college i hit a 10-year stretch of singleness Hmm. and it, it forced me to start asking questions did i miss god's calling for me as a woman You know, I was taught that was the biblical calling for me. Did I miss it? Am I not going to be really a full woman um, in God's sight or in, you know, it was just very important because it made me start asking questions. It made me start noticing other women's stories. And my work really started as a quest to find out what is God's vision for his daughters? And ultimately that led me to realize that the same questions surface for men. You know, what, is it, what does it mean to be a man? 
Can I, I have to earn my manhood and can I lose it? Can it be taken from me? Can it be beaten out of me? What is this? And it drove me back to scripture. Um, one of my first issues was that I, you know, having grown up on strong Bible teaching that women weren't separated from the men, we've got the same meaty teaching. And then I started going to women's events and I just was horrified how light it was, how, oh, you're so beautiful. God thinks you're beautiful. (laughs) When I don't want to be beautiful, I want to my life to count, you know, and I want to have purpose and meaning. Mm. And is it out of reach for me? So the first five books (laughs) were focused on women and asking those questions for women, women and the parameters of my search got bigger so that I'm asking, what is God's purpose for me as a woman? Does it begin when I begin? Or does it depend on certain events, certain life events? And does it expire? And, you know, looking at other women's stories, and then I read um, Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun, their book, Half the Sky. And I realized we're just talking about American women, you know, we're just, and, and largely Caucasian women. You know, we're not taking into account what, how other challenge, what challenges other women face, and um, and I wanted a conversation that included everybody, and that was my quest. It drove me to Genesis one and two to say what what was God's vision for His daughters, and of course. God's sons are in this too. And some of the same questions occur to men. You know, am I a real man? (laughs) How do I earn my manhood? Is somebody going to take it from me? Is somebody going to beat it out of me? Is somebody going to deny me? And there are all through the world, there are rights that a man has to go through to prove that he's a man. And again, my my degree was in sociology, and then I went to seminary and got a degree in biblical studies. Different cultures in the world have a different measure, a different level that a, that a boy must reach to be able to call himself a man. And some of these rights are absolutely criminal what they do to boys that boys have to endure without screaming or crying and their own fathers and uncles are doing it to them so the questions that I was asking for women compelled me to study scripture in search of answers and to look again at how the bible talks about women the stories of women in the bible and there were men in those stories that blew me away that don't get talked about very much. We talk about David and Goliath and Daniel and the lion's den and Joshua and Jericho. But these men embody or come to embody a brand of manhood that reflects Jesus. Mm. And 
they blew me away. And I, you know, when I finished my um, book about my fourth book about women, then I launched into writing one about men because I just thought men need this as much as women do. Yeah. Anyway, it all comes from my roots. It has cost me a lot mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm not following the roadmap for women. And I married a man who didn't grow up in that world and called me out. Mm-hmm. He called me out and has pushed me out the door to do what God is calling me to do. It's an unexpected journey. I'm shocked by it. I'm emboldened by it. I'm nurtured by it. I have so much more to learn. I think the bumps in the road that we encounter, the things that are most painful to us are opportunities for us to ask harder questions of God and of his word. And it's been life-changing for me. That's awesome. Totally life-changing. I love a good pun to start off. Would you please expand on the spelling of the title of your book, Maelstrom, and why you felt the need to write it? The writing part, you did explain a little bit, but I'm very interested why the name that you chose. Well, because I believe, and when I looked into the studies of masculinity and um, stories of men and the whole patriarchal system, which is the one that is global, it's impacted every culture that calls a man to be in charge, to be the protector and the provider and to be the leader. Mm -hmm. Patriarchy crowns the firstborn son with firstborn rights and privileges in in the patriarchal world when a, when in that culture the firstborn gets twice as much of his father's estate as mm-hmm. any of his um, si- male siblings and the mm-hmm. daughters get married off they don't inherit and that's the biblical model that is in in force after Genesis 3 and it it is tearing apart relationships between brothers in Genesis. All the way through Genesis, they are warring over firstborn rights and privileges. And they're and they're killing. They want to kill each other over it. I met a young man, one of our seminary students was from Tanzania. And I said to him, what is it like to be your father's firstborn son? And he just rose up in his chair. It was sort of like he became a different person because there was almost a royal regal demeanor about him. And he said, I am my father's confidant. My father Mm -hmm. makes no decisions without me. All of my siblings look to me for leadership. And he said, I will build my father's name and his estate in the community. Well, and you see that play out in scripture, mm-hmm. you know, that that's, that's patriarchy. And, you know, as soon as this system kicks in, Genesis 
three, you know, the woman hears that the man is, is going to rule over her. The woman in Genesis it begins to move to the margins in the story. And what you find is that this patriarchal system, it leads to wars, it leads to all kinds of violence among men, it leads to power struggles, and it leads to the abuse of women and the abuse of men who don't have those rights and privileges and powers. It's a hierarchical system. I called it a pyramid system Hmm. where there's very little room at the top and the top isn't safe. (laughs) When you look at history, they may get there and they may stay there for a little bit, but they're not going to stay there forever. And ultimately they all fall. If they don't get brought down by other men, death will take them or bad health or old age, you know, so it's not, it's not secure. And what I concluded from that is this patriarchal maelstrom, M-A-L-E, is pulling men down. It brings out the worst in men, or it can. What does it do to a marriage when a man has Mm. to be in charge and his wife isn't a full collaborator? And the vision that my work centers on comes out of Genesis 1 and 2. And that's key to everything, where every human being is entrusted with a calling from our creator. And that calling is to image him. It's a call to theology. It's a call to know our creator, to know his heart for the world, to know his character and his ways. And we have Jesus as the perfect Imago Dei, but that's humanity's first and most important calling. And it's not something we earn, it's a birthright for all of us. We are created to reflect our creator and to look after things in his world on his behalf and in his way. When God creates human beings, he creates them male and female. I believe that that is an alliance that God blesses. It's not just, wouldn't it be great if men and women got along better, but that this is a kingdom strategy for men and women to work together. And it was the first target that the enemy dismantled. He broke them up. He made, they turn on each other. That's the first thing that happens. So you have, we're called to image our creator. It means that we participate in divine revelation by how we treat other people, by how we care for God's world, by our conduct and character. He entrusts humanity with enormous power, but it's not power over one another. It's power to look after his world and to take care of it. Power is a good thing that turns bad when we have the fall. Then chapter two of Genesis zooms in on the creation of the woman. And God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And this is what he needs. The male needs the female. And it's not just to produce children. It's a kingdom strategy. This is the blessed alliance of male and female. 
God blesses that alliance in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, he underscores the importance of the female. And the language that he uses for the female is azer connecto. And the word azer is a word that is used mostly in the Bible for God as the helper of his people. It's not a wimpy word. <laughs> it's not about domesticity. It's about full engagement that she is in the battle. It's a military word. You know, it's used for armies in, in the Bible, but mostly it's used for God as the helper of his people. And it's real help that they're asking for when they when they ask for the, the azer. So this is one way that women image God is by participating in the work that God calls his image bearers to. I mean, that changed everything for me because it's just been downsized, you know. It's used for nations. Israel calls to send their armies because they're being overpowered. It, the word azer is used for what they're calling send help this kind of help. It was an alliance that was the first target that the enemy separated us from our creators and divided us from each other. All through the Bible, there are narratives where this union, this alliance comes together. And it's it's not always a husband and a wife. It's Paul and the women of Philippi <laughs> that they become azers for him and they are indispensable to his ministry. The book of Ruth is one of the most powerful examples mm. where Ruth is the azer and she impacts Boaz and he listens to her. She's an undocumented immigrant scavenging for food in his field and she's reinterpreting Jewish law the gleaning law that says, let them pick up the scraps when you're finished. Leave something behind for them. She doesn't want to take home scraps to Naomi. She takes home 29 pounds of winnowed barley after she talks to Boaz. And that's more than a male harvester would earn in a month. She takes it home in one day. And it revives Naomi's hope in God's love. And she reinterprets the Leverett Law and the Kinsman Redeemer Law because Boaz is beyond any obligation to the letter of the law, but he's not beyond an obligation to the spirit. And they become one of these alliances. It moves the purposes of God forward for the whole world. And they never knew what God was doing through them. I mean, it's so subversive. <laughs> Talking about uh, Ruth, I think that's a good place to connect that with Jesus because that, that's the story of Jesus, right? She's right there in the story of Jesus. But yes. looking at what Jesus taught, what is uh, this counterculture calling for men? Well, it's about emulating Jesus. Jesus is the role model for what it means to be a man and what he does, the people that he cares about and looks after, the self-giving love, the way he uses his power for the sake of others. You know, his disciples were really Israelite nationalists. You know, they wanted swords and they wanted to take down the Romans. And Jesus says, put away your sword. And they wanted to know who had 
authority. And Jesus says, that's how the Gentiles operate. That's not how we operate. And it's about, it's about justice. It's about truth. It's about emulating our creator, which means looking after others. It means justice is a central issue. I mean, all through the Bible, it talks about God's throne is a throne of justice. That's what we are called to emulate. And, you know, we've set aside Jesus and we put other male examples forward that mean as a man, you have to earn it. You're not a man if you're not the breadwinner. If you're not the one who makes decisions in the family, if you don't produce a family to carry on the next generation, it's you have to earn it and you can lose it. It's not yours to have to define you. And what you find are the stories of men in the Bible who some of them are horrible Paul was mm -hmm. horrible. He was horrible. And he gets this vision to go to Macedonia. And when he gets there, he can't find any men. He's disrupted his whole itinerary. And there are no men in the synagogue, no men that he can join forces with. And he goes to a place of prayer and he finds a group of praying Azers. And they become indispensable to his ministry. When he writes to the Philippian church, he says, I thank God every time I remember you from the first day. And translators make that obscure what he's saying. The women were there on the first day. And they become church planters in Europe. The first church planters in Europe were women the Philippian women. <laughs> and Paul, this former religious terrorist, is partnering with Azers to do what God has called him to do. And he says, I thank God every day I remember you from the first day. Mm. I mean, we just don't see it unless we, unless we start looking for it. But even... Jesus had an azer in his story. And it and it's Mary of Bethany. My first book I wrote to argue that the first great New Testament theologian was a woman because she was his student. She sat at his feet and she learned from him. And she struggled to trust him when her brother died and Jesus didn't come in time to save him from dying. And so when Jesus is facing the worst of all and his disciples are all having dinner with him and they're in total denial, she comes in and anoints Jesus for his burial. And Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She's the only one who stood with him. And she's and she has to understand what she's 
what she's doing or it's a horrible act of unbelief that your enemies are going to (laughs) win. But he, but he says she has done a beautiful thing to me. What did that mean to Jesus? (laughs) When I look at our Christian brothers, you're not called to be passive or powerless or wimpy. (laughs) You know, the calling is a steeper calling than what patriarchy asks. Mm. It's it's a calling to self-giving love, Mm. to putting the interests of others ahead of yourself. We're all called to that. And it's, and it's a totally different message than you've got to be the boss. Or you've got to be on top of the pyramid. <laughs> it's the gospel. That's what we're supposed to emulate. Jesus is the perfect imago Dei. If we want to know what it means to be a man or a woman, then we have to look at God's vision in the beginning and we have to look at Jesus. You know, it's, it's, it's everything. It's every fix your eyes on Jesus, (laughs) you know? So because the Bible is our source, what scripture passages uh, illustrate Jesus model of manhood? Well, in Maelstrom, I'm talking about men that we usually gloss over. Like Mm -hmm. one of the ones One of my favorites is Judah. He has three older brothers who have disqualified themselves and shamed their father by their actions. One slept with his with his their father's concubine. The other two led a slaughter of the the men of Shechem. So Judah's number four, and he really becomes the leader of the family. But his father favors son number 11. Okay. And it's all at war in the family. And Judah is ready to murder him. He would like, he would like to kill him. He, he, that's what he's got in mind. And that's what he fakes. But instead he traffics him. I mean, this Judah's a monster. <laughs> And then he goes to his father with a cover-up to his own crime, where he makes it look like Joseph is dead. And then he goes into Canaanite territory. He leaves the covenant family, and he goes into Canaan. And he marries a Canaanite woman, and he behaves like a Canaanite man. It's his daughter-in-law who confronts him with who he is. And she she is fighting for her two horrible dead husbands. They have been horrible men to her. And, and God has taken their lives. But according to tradition in that culture, when, when a, a son dies, his blood brother is obligated to marry the widow and raise up a son to replace the dead man to take his place on the family tree. It's all about inheritance. The firstborn gets twice as much as his brothers. So when Jude has three sons, he's going to 
divide his his estate four ways and the firstborn gets half and the other two each get a fourth. That's how it works. So when the firstborn dies, son number two gets two thirds, jumps from a fourth to two thirds and the younger brother gets a third. And by marrying the widow and producing a son, he's going to go from a third, two thirds back to a fourth. He's not going to do it. You know, he talks to his accountant <laughs> and he says, this is, this doesn't work. And, you know, she ends up posing as a prostitute and entrapping her father-in-law to produce a son. And God blesses her with two sons to replace both her dead husbands. And she confronts Judah because when he finds out she has acted as a prostitute, he wants to kill her. But he's been guilty of the same crime. And she confronts him with his with his passport and his credit card, you know, the, the symbols of his identity. And he says she the, the translation is not correct. Um, Hebrew translators are saying, he says about Tamar, she is righteous, I am not. And it is the turning point in Judah's story. And years later, when he meets his brother Joseph, who is now risen to power in Egypt, and he doesn't know that's who he's talking to. And the words of Judah should make anybody weep because Joseph wants to take Jacob's new favorite son, Benjamin. You have to read the story to get all the pieces to this. But he wants wants to take Benjamin and make him a slave. They don't know they're talking to Joseph. And Judah steps forward and offers his own life as a slave in place of his father's new favorite. It's the gospel. It's the, it's the most tender, sacrificial, loving speech in the whole Old Testament. I mean, it's just, it, it breaks my heart to read it. And, but that's, that's the kind of man God creates. Fantastic. I love the connections you're making. It takes time to get the person there, but I, I see the connections. You've been listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javed, which presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. 